With me, Father in heaven, now we come to your word and we pray that you would open it to us as Jesus is risen. Lord Jesus, I pray that by your spirit we would come to know your presence. We would come to trust in you more and more, deeper and deeper. So I pray that this word, God, is open to us, that we hear it, that we listen, that we believe. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Acts and chapter 4, the book of Acts, chapter 4. I want to read the first uh, 12 verses. Acts and chapter 4, please. Hear the word of God. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number had heard in the number of uh, I'm sorry, but many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about five thousand. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and with John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the middle, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man... By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which... We must be saved. Now, I chose this passage not because it's Easter, but because it's the next one. As you know, those of you who have been coming here forever, you know that this is just the next passage. I've been preaching through the book of Acts for a little while. We finished the end of chapter 3 last Sunday, so we picked up in chapter 4. Now, by God's wonderful providence, it's about the resurrection. Uh, As you have been with us through many of these sort of high church days, whether it be Christmas or the season of Lent or Advent or whatever it is, you realize that sometimes I change my text for these days, but often I don't need to. Uh, The reason being is that these days of, for instance, Advent or Christmas or Lent or Easter or even Ascension or something like that, these days in the church year, are so huge, such big themes in the scripture that they're, they're everywhere. And so rarely do I have to even change my text. For instance, if this were Advent, I could preach from this prophetic word from Psalm 118, saying that this this one is going to come, the chief cornerstone is going to come, so I wouldn't have to change then. If it was Christmas, I could preach about the fact that it was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, I know he was born in Bethlehem, so don't write me. Um, but, but, But the point being that he was real. This isn't a mythical figure. This is Jesus of Nazareth, this man we all know. He came, God with us. I could preach there through Lent. I could preach on any given Sunday about the crucifixion and the suffering of Christ and our repentance in that regard. 
Uh, today, Easter, twice mentioned resurrection from the dead. Uh, if it were Ascension Day, I could preach from the very fact that, that this man had been healed by Jesus, meaning Jesus had ascended and he's ruling and reigning. So it's all here. All those big themes about the life of Jesus occur over and over again. In fact, it would be hard to be preaching from anywhere in the scripture and not be able to find reference to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In fact, as we read through the New Testament, we read through Paul's writings just in the book of Romans, for instance. And the first chapter, verse 4, tells us that God declared Jesus to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. In chapter 4 in Romans, we read uh, that he, was, he, was, he suffered for our transgressions. He was delivered for our transgressions, but he was raised for our justification. We get to chapter 10 of Romans, we realize that, that the very profession of our lips is about the resurrection of Jesus. For Paul writes... That if we believe, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We come to 1 Corinthians, we find many references to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That it's crucial, Paul says, this is what I received, this is what I'm passing on to you, this is the truth. That Jesus on the third day rose from the dead, in fact he says... That if Jesus hadn't risen, then everything we do is futile. Everything we do is in vain. Our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We're misrepresenting God, he says, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. Because we're staking everything on it. And so if he hasn't risen from the dead, then there's nothing here. In fact, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, we're still in our sins, he said. And those who have died believing in Jesus have perished. He says, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then we're of all people to be pitied. We can read through all of Paul's letters and we find over and over again references to the resurrection of Jesus. We get to the book of Hebrews, we realize that that it's all structured around the fact that this Jesus, who is our high priest, is still alive. In fact, he lives, the scripture says, to intercede for us so that he can save to the utmost, to the uttermost, save completely. All those who come to God through him. We come to James. He speaks of Jesus as the glorious Holy One. Still alive. Glorious. Uh, Peter tells us that we've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. So the Apostle Peter reiterates it even, not only in his speeches and his sermons here in the book of Acts, but he reiterates it even in his epistles. When we come to the book of Revelation, we see Jesus. The Apostle John sees him right there. So much so that he falls down before Jesus as one dead and Jesus has to pick him up. We see Jesus walking around the churches. We see Jesus ruling and reigning. We see Jesus returning in triumph. The resurrection of Jesus informs everything. In fact, as we read through the book of Acts, we find... References to the resurrection all over the place. The early church was, was based upon it, informed by it, everything. In fact, as, as Luke begins to write, he gives us the impression that he's telling us about all the things that Jesus continues to do and teach. In fact, the book of Acts opens with Jesus there commanding his disciples to wait in Jerusalem. In fact, they see him ascend into heaven. And then on this day of Pentecost, when Peter first begins to preach, he, he, he bases everything on the resurrection of Jesus. For instance, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up. And then again in that same sermon, 
just minutes later, he said about Jesus being there for a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And then when Peter heals this man in the name of Jesus, he speaks to the people around him, and he says to them, you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. They get upset with him, even in the text that I just read, because he is proclaiming, and the disciples of Jesus are proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In fact, in chapter 4 later, this is the summary of the message of the disciples that Luke gives to us. He says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. Later, they're going to be rearrested for the same point, for speaking about Jesus as the one who's resurrected. It was the declaration of the res- re- resurrection of Jesus that did Stephen in. Uh, at the end of his sermon, uh, he looks up and he sees Jesus standing there, and he announces that. He says to them, I see the Son of Man standing in heaven. And they killed him. It was the resurrected Lord Jesus that met Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and spoke to him so that even Saul, who became Paul, uh, saw the risen Christ. When Peter goes to the Gentiles to tell them about Jesus, he says to them that this Jesus has been raised from the dead. When Paul begins his ministry, it's founded on the very fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. He goes place to place to place and says, what I've seen is this resurrected Jesus. He's alive. When he goes into Athens, these people who know nothing about God, he speaks to them about the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, that fascinates them. They says, we don't know what this man is talking about. They're talking about a man raised from the dead. When Peter's arrested, I'm sorry, when Paul is arrested and he stands before various ones, various officials, the thing he speaks to them of is Jesus raised from the dead. We simply can't avoid it because, you see, it informs everything. And when we say that Jesus has been raised from the dead, we mean that. We mean that he died. And we mean that he was raised, not simply raised in a spiritual sense, that sort of his soul lives on, but raised in the sense that he was given a new body. Jesus, the Son of God, God with us, 100% divine nature, 100% human nature in a body to represent us before God. After he died, he was raised and received a new body as well. And that's significant for us, you see. Because Jesus came to live and to die for us. Human beings. People with bodies. When God made us, he made us soul and body. It isn't that our souls are all that's important or all that makes us up. We're also souls with bodies that makes a human being. Do you know, hope this doesn't come as a surprise to you, will always be human. After we die, we don't become angels. We stay human. To be humans, we need bodies. When God made us with bodies, before we sinned, he said, that's good. I don't know that he would say that about my body today. Uh, Others have said it needs a little work. I don't know what they mean by that exactly. All right, I do know what they mean by that exactly. 
But in the resurrected body of Jesus, it's a perfect body, an imperishable body. And what that is saying to us is that when he came, and when he lived, and when he died, and when he rose, that was to restore everything to us that was lost due to sin. Not only our souls being saved, but also a body, so that we're restored 100% well as human beings. It isn't a small thing. It's huge. If it hadn't happened, if the Gospels had ended with the death of Jesus, there wouldn't have been anything beyond that. In fact, those Gospels would never have been written. There would have been nothing to write about. Because you see, when Jesus died, the scripture says that he died for our sins, meaning that he took the sins of sinners upon himself. He took the penalty for our sin upon himself. Now the question would be, was God going to accept his sacrifice? Was God going to accept his sacrifice for us? The answer is yes. How do we know that? Because he rose from the dead. When he rose, he was saying to us and said to us that God accepted the sacrifice. I paid the debt. And once he had paid for our sins, you see, he was free to go. He was free to live. Why? Because he had no sin in himself. He wasn't dying for his own sins. He was taking ours. And once he had paid our debt, there was nothing left to hold him. And so he rose. And in his rising, he's able to say to us, it really is finished. The sacrifice was accepted. Trust in me. Now on this day... Peter makes this declaration about the resurrection of Jesus. It came on the heels of a particular event. And that event was very significant, most especially in the life of one particular man. There was a man who was crippled. He had been crippled from birth. And he was now over 40 years old, so he had never walked. It wasn't simply a psychosomatic thing. It wasn't simply just something mental, something sim simply that was keeping him, therefore, from walking, though he otherwise could. He simply couldn't walk. He was over 40 years old. It was clear that he couldn't walk. His friends had to carry him from place to place. One of the places they carried him was in front of a gate in the temple. And on a particular day, Peter and John, the apostles of Jesus, Peter and John were walking towards the temple to go to pray. And they gazed upon this man. Now you get the sense this is a very special event. You get the sense that this doesn't happen every day. Not even to Peter and John. You get the sense that by the Holy Spirit, they knew that Jesus was going to heal this man. Because they didn't pray for him. They didn't ask him if he wanted to be healed. They commanded him to be healed in the name of Jesus. They simply said, we don't have any money to give you, but what we have we'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. A command. Then Peter leaned over and picked him up. And the scripture said that as Peter did that, this man's ankles and feet were strengthened and he walked. It was miraculous. And the result to that, as Peter began to talk about that to the people around him, is he said, this is due to Jesus. Jesus is the authority here. Jesus gave the authorization here. I did this in the name of Jesus. And I can do that because though you killed him, God raised him from the dead. Though you killed the author of life, God raised him from the dead. Jesus is alive, and this man standing here, whole and healed, is evidence of that. And so Peter's 
admonition to them was that they should repent. That is, they should change the way they were thinking about Jesus, change the way they were thinking about everything, and realize that Jesus was it. To realize that Jesus was the very Son of God and that they were to trust in Him. So He said, repent and turn, essentially repent and turn to God. And He says, your sins will be blotted out. Times of refreshing will come. And when Jesus returns, He'll come for you. Now that made some people upset. It's not interesting. Rather than to be happy for the fact that this man who could, could not walk, had never walked, now was walking and leaping, uh, they couldn't be happy for that. And so a group of people gathered, and they were the religious leaders of the day. We, we see them as, as, as it described here in the first part. It was the captain of the temple. Uh, the temple in Jerusalem had its own police, if you will, to police people coming in and out. And, and the Jews had a certain measure of authority over themselves. And so he was a very, very important person, like the chief of police. There he was, the captain of the temple. Uh, the priests were there. Uh, the Sadducees were there. Probably most of these people identified with the Sadducees, a particular party. Uh, they were in, in Israel. Uh, they were very significant, very important, very wealthy. They were locked into the Roman authorities. Uh, most of the priests were Sadducees. The high priests were Sadducees by that point because they were more political appointments than religious appointments. Um, the Sadducees, interestingly, though uh, Israelites, though believers in the Old Testament scriptures, they would say, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so to be touting that Jesus rose from the dead was to go against everything that they believed and everything that they taught. And they simply couldn't abide this teaching of the resurrection of Jesus. And so when this happened, their attention wasn't on this man's glory and his, his, his great joy that now he was walking and he never walked before. It wasn't on the mercy that was given to him and the compassion that was shown in this great miracle. It wasn't that. And it wasn't even so much on Peter and John other than the fact that they claimed to do what they did in the name of Jesus. And that's what got them. Because they did it in the name of Jesus, meaning under the authority, the authorization of Jesus, which means Jesus must have been alive. That was their claim, that Jesus, in a sense, did this. And they said, that can't happen. There can't be anyone raised from the dead, not like this. And so they came against uh, Peter and John asking, how'd you do this? In what name did you really do this? And so the real big shots gathered uh, Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, who was uh, previous, uh, he was the high priest as well. John and Alexander, who we don't know, but were of this family. Maybe they were next in line. And so they came, verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then the scripture says, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that doesn't mean prior to that he was empty of the Holy Spirit. It just meant that at this moment in time, the Spirit came upon him again in power to help him. You remember Jesus had told his disciples that when you're arrested, don't worry, I'll give you what to say. The Holy Spirit will help you. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't need to know anything. Jesus had taught them a great deal, obviously. But he says, don't worry. When you're arrested, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and, and he will help you. And this is exactly what's taking place here. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the peoples and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man... By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus 
of Nazareth. Now, that was a bit of a slam. Because nobody liked Nazareth. Nazareth, to them, was like Columbia, Missouri is to us. You remember the line, what good can come from there? So there was a bit of a slam. Of all places this person could come from, he came from Nazareth. Now, if they'd said Bethlehem, that would have been, oh, much better. But Jesus of Nazareth. But the point being, a real man, a real person, somebody who had an address, somebody that we identified, somebody that we know. This wasn't a mythical figure. This wasn't somebody who was a phantom. This was Jesus of Nazareth. You know him. Whom you crucified. Oh, that Jesus of Nazareth, yes. Whom God raised from the dead. Basically to say, look, this Jesus whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. He's the one. He's the Messiah. He's the one who we should be putting our trust in. He's the one who did this. And the very proof that he's alive, you can't see him at the moment, though we have seen him. You can't see him at the moment. The proof that he's alive is that he did this. He could not have done this if he were dead. He could not have done this if he hadn't pleased God. He could not have done this if God had not been pleased with who he is and what he had done and where he is and all of that. Because only God can do this kind of thing. So Jesus of Nazareth, he said, by him this man is standing before you well. That's what Jesus does. He brings wellness. He brings wholeness. He brings salvation. And then he goes on. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, Jesus had used that expression about himself in his own teaching. It's a line out of Psalm 118, which is understood by them, by us, as a psalm of the Messiah. Uh, Interestingly, it's a psalm that takes us through the crucifixion, in a sense, and the resurrection, in a sense. And it has this famous line in it. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It's likely that Jesus sang that as one of the hymns he would have sung as he left that last supper with his disciples to move on to the crucifixion. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know what the scripture says. It was for the joy that was set before him, that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. But it has in it this expression that the stone that the builders rejected became the chief of the corner, became the cornerstone or the capstone or the keystone, whatever building metaphor you want to use there. Now, builders in those days needed to be very good stone inspectors. And they needed to be inspecting stones all the time to be able to determine which stone would be the cornerstone, which stone would be the stone that would hold all those other stones together. And if a builder couldn't identify that cornerstone, he wasn't much of a builder. Because if you put the wrong stone as the cornerstone, the building would collapse. And so that was a key necessity for builders. And so he turns to these who he calls, Peter does, The builders, you're the ones building. You should be building that which is of God. You should be building the people of God. 
Now, to build the people of God, you would need the right cornerstone. And you haven't got it. You think you do, but you haven't got it. In fact, you've looked the cornerstone right in the face and you've said, get rid of it, cast it aside, throw it on the stones that we're not going to use for anything. He says, ah, that's this Jesus. And then he goes on to put it like this, verse 12. And he says, there is salvation in no one else For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Two things Peter's saying here at least. One, we must be saved. When he uses that little word saved, he means rescued, delivered from. And he says we must be rescued by another, meaning we can't save ourselves. And if we're not saved, that is we must be saved, but if we're not saved, then we're utterly lost. And you get the sense that since he's saying we must be saved, we must be rescued, that somehow we're trapped somewhere and we can't get out. Somewhere we're enslaved and we need someone to come and free us, someone to come and pay our freedom price, someone to come to unlock the chains, someone to come to move us out because we can't get out. We're trapped. People who need saving, people who need rescuing, need someone to come and do that for them because they're stuck and they're trapped there. And Peter is then saying, Jesus is the only one to do this. He's the one who brings salvation, that is, rescue. He's the one who brings wholeness. In fact, this man who's standing before you is a picture of that. It isn't the ultimate picture of that. That's not going to happen until Jesus returns and comes in all of its fullness. But there's a sense in which this is a picture. Here's a man who couldn't walk and could do nothing about it. There's only one person who could make him well. Jesus. And that's a picture. That's what's going to happen. A day will come when we'll all be well because of Jesus. A day is going to come that everyone who trusts in him will all be well because of Jesus. Spiritually well. Physically well. Socially well. Everything will be well with his soul, well with his body, well with his relationships. His relationship with God and his relationship with everyone else. And this man standing here before you is a picture of that. And Jesus is the only one who can do that. We didn't go on to make this explanation. He will, the whole scripture is filled with it. But let me just fill it in. And that is this, that we're trapped. We're trapped by what the Bible calls in a word, sin right? We're trapped in that. We're trapped by its power. We're trapped by its penalty. That's where we're trapped. We're trapped by sin. And this idea of sin simply means that we do not honor God. We are created by him to honor him. That is, to depend upon him. We were never meant to do this without him. We were never meant to do this alone. We were meant to do this in dependence upon him, that he would be the one to supply to us all that we need. And that when we dishonor God, it means we cease to depend upon him. We cease to look to him as the one who will tell us who we are. Rather than to look to him to, depend, to tell us who we are, we look to others. We try to figure it out ourselves. We look to our peers. Oh, I want to be like that. Or I want to be like that. And so we cease to look to God to say, who am I? Who am I to be? 
And we look to others, we look to our peers, we look to our own wisdom to, do, to tr- try to see how we're to live this life. And rather than asking God, how should I live? Tell me how I should live, I'll submit to you. Tell me who I am so that I may submit to you. We look to others and we go it alone. And that's dishonoring to this one who has, who's made us. So we look to the wisdom of others. It might be a philosopher. It might be uh, another peer, another person. So many times we look to other people and we say, tell me who I am so I can live in some way to please you. Do you understand that's the wrong focus? That's the wrong point of focus. We're to be looking to God and saying, who am I? How am I to live? Tell me and, and strengthen me to live like that. Direct me. And we're trapped, you see, in this self-centeredness. Not so self-centered that we never look out to the, for the needs of others. We do that. That's not what I mean by that. What I mean by this self-centeredness is that we're trapped in trying to determine who we are and how we're to live and living according to that rather than God. And so we live by our own wisdom, we live by our own passions, we live by our own desires, and we think if we can satisfy ourselves in the way that we think we need to be satisfied, we'll actually be happy. And it simply doesn't work. Oh, it works for a time, it works for a season, it works relatively as we compare ourselves with each other, but it doesn't work for eternity. Because we can't control the things that we can't control. We can't control the things that come against us ultimately and so we're stuck in these feelings of guilt we don't know where they come from we just feel guilty at times and we think I shouldn't and so we try to suppress them and cover them up by having other people tell me we're not so bad after all and telling ourselves that we're not so bad after all and by having fun and taking pleasure and trying to build our lives in such a way that we're insulated from those feelings we feel anxiety we worry about things because we know there are things we can't control. We ensure ourselves in every possible way we can. We get the best education we can. We marry the person that has the best future that we possibly can. Uh, we, 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 we take care of ourselves, give or take. We know we should take care of ourselves. We know the medicines and the vitamins and the exercise and all of that we should take. And when things get a little nervous, we, we really kick up on all of that because we're going we're gonna to try to preserve ourselves even, even more. But we know there are things that could get us. Because we look around and there are things that get people who seem to be better off than we are. People who have more money lose it. People who have better health get cancer. People who are smarter find the market falling out for their job. People who seem to have good relationships find that their spouses make decisions that, 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 that hurt or children make decisions that give pain, and we know we're not in control about all these things, and we're anxious about that. And we try to look to another who can help us, but we keep looking to ourselves. And no matter how glossy that book cover is that says, how to, we read about that author's cancer, that author's divorce, that author's frailties, and we go, rats! They're no better than we are. It's just another guy, just another woman. Because we're never meant to live like that. We're never meant to live alone. But we're stuck there in this self-centeredness. We don't know where else, don't know where else to look. 
And that, you see, is not only unwise, it's not only wrong, if I could use an old-fashioned word, it's wicked. It's wicked, it's evil, because it's dishonoring to God. It's saying, I'm not going to go to you even though you made me. I'm not going to go to you even though you're right. I'm not going to go to you even though you're the one who has the designs for my life. I'm I'm not going to go to you. I'm going to stay here. And that's dishonoring to God. That's unjust. It's really wicked. And so we're not only stuck in the power of this self-centeredness, but we're stuck under the penalty of it as well. And so that's where we find ourselves trapped. That's why we need someone to save us. Now this man in the story was trapped physically because he couldn't walk. And we're trapped not only physically, our bodies are going to give out, but we're trapped spiritually as well because we've offended God. And we live therefore under his just condemnation. And so the question is, how are we going to get unstuck? Who can save us? I mean, that's really the question. And that's the answer that Peter gives. There is one name that can save us. There's one name under heaven. There's one name in earth by which men must be saved. Can't be saved any other way but by Jesus. And sometimes people say to we Christians, to us, that sounds rather arrogant to say that you have the only way. And of course, the answer is we haven't the only way. The only way was given to us. In other words, it wasn't our only way. It was the only way that was given to us. And, and really, there is only one problem. And this solves that one problem. So why need another way? And what other way could there be? Because you see, what we need is to someone to come and free us from this self-centeredness, both its power and its penalty. So what we need is someone, since this is all related to God, we need someone to go to God on our behalf. Someone that God will receive, someone that God will accept. And then we need someone to pay our debt, to pay this penalty. The only alternative to that is to live perfectly and therefore not accrue this debt, this penalty. Whoops. Okay, it's too late for that. Now, maybe we could depend on one of, one of ourselves to go before God. You know, I could represent you, you could represent me, but, but that really doesn't work. Because I have my own sins to deal with before God, and I'll be dealing with that for eternity. So that won't leave me any time to deal with yours. And so we need someone who can go before God, who will be accepted by God, who doesn't have to worry about his own situation before God, but can take ours upon himself. And one who is so respected by God that he's worth us. And even more so. And that's Jesus. God in the flesh. The very son of God. The perfect one. Uh, That's why his death is so important. That's why his life was so important. Because he lived for us. Meaning that he obeyed everything for God. Accrued no debt of his own. Accrued no penalty of his own. And then, because of who he was, because of his relationship with the Father, and because of the agreement that he had before the foundations of the world, he was then able to take the sins of sinners, the penalty upon himself. And when he died, he paid that. He said, it's finished. Now you might say, why did Jesus have to die? 
Why couldn't God have simply forgiven us? We forgive all the time, don't we? Or at least we should. And, and we don't necessarily exact a payment out of anyone. I'm sure perhaps there have been situations in your life, been situations in my life, where someone has taken, for instance, money from me. And while I didn't have to, in the course of that, I've forgiven that debt and said, you don't need to pay me back. And you say, well, why can't God do that? Well, the answer is, there's no free forgiveness ever. Forgiveness always costs. Back in my former life, don't get nervous about that, my former profession, uh, I was an economist. And the great, uh, the great uh, expression that we used is that there's no free lunch. And uh, sometimes I would bring lunch to my students if it was a small class. I'd bring lunch, give it to them, and said, now you know this wasn't free. It didn't cost you anything, but it cost me $49.50. Right? I mean, that's because that's, it always costs. Forgiveness always costs. Somebody steals $100 from me and I forgive them. It doesn't cost them. It costs me 100 bucks. If someone hurts you and you forgive them, it may not cost them, but you know that pain. And you see, when we accrue this debt of our sin to God, how can that be paid? If we don't pay it, God must incur it. And he does. He pays it. The very Son of God takes it and dies. And why must it be our lives? Why must it be everything? It's because, you see, God gave us life and we misused it. God gave us life and we didn't use it in the way that he had given to us it, for us to be used. And so justice says... If we misuse life, life is taken. An eye for an eye, very just, perfectly just. And so Jesus takes perfect justice by dying our death for our sin. Eternal condemnation on him that we might be free. And if he didn't raise from the dead, then none of this would be true. Because if he stayed dead, it would have meant that he had to pay for his own sins, that it wasn't enough. But since he rose from the dead, it means that it is finished. That all will be well. That all is well with our souls. That a day will come when all will be well. Now here's the question. Here's why I like Easter Sundays. For me and for us. It's one of those days to re-up. You know, it's, it's one of those days to rethink. Because the message is so basic. I mean, basic in the sense that this is it. This is the guts of it, isn't it? Uh, we, we can play around with other things on other Sundays. We can talk about this application and that application. And we can talk about how to be a better husband or how to be a better wife in, in Christ or a child or a worker or whatever that is. Or, or how to deal with pain and how to deal with sacrifice, how to deal with these very specific things. But, but on Easter is like Christmas. I mean, this is a big deal. You, you go through the big stuff. You lay out the big picture. But that big picture is the very guts of it. And, and so I find these kinds of days to be days 
to re-up. To look into the face of Jesus. Yes, you're alive. And I believe that. Do you? That's the question for us. In whom do we trust? By what name do we find life? By what name shall we be made whole? Peter says, God says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us. That would be true. And you would have nothing to deter us, nothing to keep us from trusting in Jesus. Father, that we would turn away from trusting ourselves, that we'd turn away from trusting other people, that we would turn away from trusting other ideas, that we would turn away from trusting the economy, that we would turn away from trusting what we have saved in the bank, that we would turn away, Father, from trusting um, in medicine to think that if we find a cure for cancer that we'll actually be the first generation never to die. Father, you'd be with us, causing us, enabling us to trust you. That you would Forgive us our sins. That you would grant to us times of refreshing. And that you would give to us the assurance to know that when Jesus comes, he'll come for us. And to know that we're not going through this alone. To know that we've been freed so that we can turn to you and that you will help us and that you will care for us. And that we might be your witnesses. This I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Now, you know, I trust, you know, the benediction is a good word. It's a good word from God. At the end of this benediction, we will have an opportunity to profess faith. Uh, the response to the benediction is, Christ is risen, Christ, I'm sorry, Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. Now, don't say that just because everybody else is. Say it if it's true. If it's not true, don't say it. If you don't believe that Christ is risen, then don't say it. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Now, obviously, it's a true statement. So you could, you'd be professing truth. But don't do it unless you believe it. Um, and if the people who brought you would be surprised to hear you say that, then at the end, if you say it, turn to them and say, I believe now. But if you didn't believe when you came in and you're not believing now, don't say it. If you believed when you came in and believe now, say it. I think you get the point. And please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Christ is risen. He is risen.